Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame, back from a little hiatus. We are back uh, with a bang, and we have joining us one of our former guests. Before we tell you who that is, uh, welcome to my co-host, the effervescent Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Well, it's great to see you after your around-the-world journeys and uh, in, in different places and, and your wedding of your daughter. Congratulations. Thank you very now much. It's time Thank to, you now very it's much. time to get back to work. Now, yeah, now, now, exactly right. Now it's time to now it's time to stress about something other than the wedding for a little while, <laughs> i.e. the end game. Now we have uh, a returning guest joining us, um, Gerard Minnick, Minnick Advisors down under in uh, Sydney, Australia, has very kindly agreed to to find some time in his schedule. He's currently traveling around the US talking to clients. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see Bill what he's saying to them and what they've been saying to him because I think you know those are some of the most interesting conversations you can kind of eavesdrop in. I completely agree, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what uh, he's got up his sleeve, so to speak. Well, let's, uh, let's bring him in. Okay, let's do it. How are you, George? How are the meetings going? Yeah, not bad. I mean, uh, you know, client sentiment is just a, a three-month trailing average of the price action. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Such a great line. Not the most current case. <laughs> Such a great line. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, good luck. I mean, it's the first time in New York for three years. So, um, yeah. They've gone out of the country, um, and so that's good. Um, good to mix it with people, but fuck, it's expensive. Um, I mean, yeah, if you're coming from Aussie, partly coming from Oz, but even just I mean, forget the translation. Um, you know, short little Uber fares that cost you thirty bucks, a, a sandwich from Pret a Manger that costs you fifteen bucks. You go really, yeah. Um, yeah. I reckon there might be some inflation in the place. I don't know. Uh, I think it's transitory. No. I think those sandwiches at the Pret will be uh, well, eight bucks listen, before you know it. Listen, it tur- It was supposed to be transitory, but since it wasn't, it'll all be resolved soon without too much more damage to anything, and we can go back to happily ever after. That's. I think that's kind of the consensus thinking amongst Americans. I think it's the consensus amongst the equity market. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that too. Yeah, right. So... so what do you want to talk about, boys? There's you know, a bit going on. Well, there, yes, there's, there seems to be a little bit going on here and there. I mean, I, I, we could start in any any number of places, Gerald. But I, I think if you are um, giving people the old Gerard Minnick one-two punch on the road, we should probably talk about the stuff that you think is worth talking to people about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, look, you know, my big framework point is I think that, the pandemic has changed a lot of things. I, I think I was, you know, I was a card-carrying secular stagnationist for two decades, and I resigned from the club. Um, and I think a lot of the the multi-year investment trends that we have all lived our careers through um, are going to shift. And you know, the most obvious is that four-decade decline in rates, um, which you know. Just a month or two ago, um, the 10-year yield here in the States 
uh, went through the high from the last cycle. And unless you were trading rates in the 70s, that's yeah. not something that you've seen before. Right. Yeah. Um, and that starts to impact a whole lot of other stuff. Um, you know, the, the Fed peak is higher than what most were expecting. I mean, at the start of the year, the Fed fund futures were saying the peak for the fund rate this cycle would be under 1.5%. Yeah. Um, now we're up, up around 5 Um uh, yeah, other important changes that are going to come from this is one of the most important hallmarks of a, a secularly stagnant market was powerful, persistent, inverse equity bond correlation. Now, that that was manna for heaven for you know, people running multi-asset books because bonds were a really effective hedge against your um, equity risk, a really good insurance tool. But I don't know about you boys, but when I go to insure my car, I've got to pay the insurer. Here right. was a setup where if you want to insure your equity risk, uh, the bonds paid you because they've given equity-like returns through a lot of the last three decades. Um, so that's changing. Um, and I guess a, a third thing that's going to change in my mind is the use of leverage. Um uh, you know, most leverage in developed economies over the last four decades has not been used to fund consumption. It's not been used to fund uh, capex. It's uh, been used to enhance investment returns. So, in other words, it's part of a structure where you've bought um, a pre-existing asset. Now, most of us have done this in our private lives. We've bought an established home with a mortgage. Um but what people don't realise is that uh, the numbers uh, are much larger than most realise if you look at what's been going on in the financial sector. So to look at the US, the number that people often use to scare people is that non-financial sector debt to GDP is about 350 360% of GDP. Great. Well, if I add in financial sector debt and crucially don't net off the intersection, the inter-industry um, uh, nets, we saw leverage in the US peak at 1,000% of GDP. Um, now, it's, it's, it, what we saw in the GFC is that gross positions matter. We had all these daisy chains of collateral and obligations, um, and everybody was happy to net them off until one of the chains snapped, and then what matters is your gross. Now, over the last four decades, to be levered in investment markets was normally a pleasurable state to be. There was obviously um, periods of pain. The GFC was the obvious one. But the pleasure to pain ratio was pretty high. But that's against a backdrop of rates trending down. Um, if we are now in a world where rates are trending up, that pleasure pain ratio is going to tip. And it's not always going to be painful to be levered, but the risk reward is is tipping. So, yeah, these are some of the fundamental um, sort of trends that have really driven markets over the last um, four decades, and it, it culminated in um, what was arguably the most expensive set of markets we've ever seen, which is why now I'm telling everybody that the US has entered. A beta drought. Um, now, how do I define a beta drought? 
for me, that's when just a, a vanilla 60-40 equity bond portfolio um, gives you a total return uh, below zero in real terms over at least a decade. Now, if you look historically in the US, uh, there's been four beta droughts. So four decades, decade at least a decade of, of real losses on a 60-40 portfolio. Three of those four episodes were associated with significant increases in inflation. And that was around World War One, World War II, 70s. Now, I don't think we're going to get that sort of inflation. I mean, that was a decade average inflation of at least 6%. The fourth beta drought uh, followed the peak in equities in 2000. Now, compare 2000 to where we got to last year. On most absolute valuation measures of equities, we were we were line ball. Depends which one you use. Not quite as expensive on a CAPE measure, more expensive on a price to sales, matching on a price to book. I mean, so we're, we're there. I mean, we, we were there. But what people forget is in uh, 1999, when the tech bubble was at its peak, um, the real yield on a 10 or 30 year treasury was over 4%. So yeah, the US Treasury was willing to guarantee you an after, in, after inflation real return of 4% for up to 30 years. Where were those bonds last year? Well, the 10-year was minus one. Yeah, It's 500 basis points worse off. Um, so anybody that wants to just be a beta harvester going forward, and I know we've already taken some pain, it's, it's going to be thin gruel. Um, and I just think you, you're going to have to be more active. Um, you need to generate some alpha, which is obviously easier said than done. But you know, the curtain's coming down on on the on the on the easy easy beta beta trades. Well, look, there's there's I mean there's a ton in there we can get into. Um, but let's why don't we start with your your resignation from the board of the uh, Secular Stagnation Committee? Because there's a few guys who walked out that door, you and Russell Napier being the two kind of probably most prominent ones. Um, but unfortunately, the two of you are the sort of people that when you make a move like that, it pricks people's ears up. So so talk about what it was this time, uh, Gerard, that made you actually say, right, I quit. Yeah, um, uh, three, three things um, for me. First and foremost, policymakers rediscover the joys of fiscal, um, and and fiscal works. I mean, it works. It's worked too well in this cycle. We've overdone it. But the point about fiscal policy is it was effectively disabled for three decades when politicians subcontracted the management of the cycle to central banks. Um, and we know monetary policy is marvelously asymmetric. You can always hike rates to a level that will slow growth. But central banks found it increasingly difficult to cut rates to levels that could simulate it. And without fiscal playing a role, we, we experienced three really sluggish recoveries from you know, the early 90s recession, the 2000s recession, the GFC. So fiscal works. And I don't think that genie is going to go back in the bottle. Um, although they. Wait, can, can I stop you for one second? Because I'm going to keep thinking about this so I don't. But. I could argue that we were able to get growth or speculation in any case as they cut rates. What we found is every time they've tried to back away from that, they get stopped. Right? They tried to back away from QE in 18 and 
there's a repo market problem. And, you know, so far they're, they're trying to raise rates. At least we are in America. Obviously they don't want to in Japan. They're going both ways in, in England. Who knows what the ECB's uh, going to attempt. But I think I can make a legitimate case that they can stimulate and get what they want to some degree. They just can't tighten very far. So it's, it seems like it's just the opposite of what you said. How do you square that circle? Oh, no. I, well, I, let's face it. The Fed has tightened a lot more than a lot of people were expecting at the, yeah. at the start of the year. Um, and I think what particularly equity investors who are still breathlessly waiting for a Fed pivot uh, have missed two things. But firstly, the real economy has turned out to be more resilient to higher rates than many expected. Yeah, but yep. we will see rates go to levels that, that kill this thing. Um, but that peak is going to be higher than what many expected as we were sort of chatting about this last year. The second thing is that they that they still are in the world of a preemptive Fed and looking for the Fed to pivot on you know the merest sniff of macro or financial pain. But that's so last last cycle. I mean, we had three decades where, broadly speaking, the Fed did preemptively set monetary policy. So it was tightening in order to slow growth before growth caused a serious inflation problem. Now, if that's done properly, then you can pivot as soon as you see your leading indicators of growth weaken. And that's why for three decades, if you just chart something like the change in the manufacturing ISM and the change in the 10-year bond yield, they do this. They're just in complete sync. Well, the Fed isn't preemptive this time. The Fed um, you know, is as far behind the curve as it's ever been. And if you believe they're committed to their inflation target, I am, and we can come back to that, then the pain threshold that they're willing to accept is a lot higher. And I still don't think the equity space gets that. So I don't think the Fed is going to blink, at least when it comes to real economy stress, there could be financial distress that makes it pause, but I don't think vanilla pain, i.e., you know, what we saw in the first half of the year just underscored two things. Firstly, inflation really is the universal solvent of asset valuations. Um, so this was largely just a typical response to high inflation. No systemic stress involved. So unless you get systemic stress that really feeds back sharply into the real economy, I don't think the Fed blinks on that front. But the second thing this last year or 18 months has reminded me of, and I'm old enough to remember the 70s, um, is just how unpopular inflation is. Um, people hate it. And that's why you're not seeing any political leader of note in a developed economy pushing back on what central banks are trying to achieve here. You, you don't have the White House wide-anting the Fed. The presidents, they're going, yeah, please, it's too late to save my bacon in the midterms, but can we get inflation down by, by the next presidential election? Well, I think you're giving him to way too much credit, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, all, all, all I'd say is... He doesn't know what day it is. Yeah, uh, well... <laughs> Someone's telling him he's down in the polls, I suspect, and uh, inflation's a reason. For anyway, that. anyway. So, yeah, we've got all this. Uh, yeah, the, the Fed will, I think, do what it takes. Um, and it, financial markets are going to be collateral damage. And unless we get systemic 
risk, and I can't rule that out because there is that huge stockpile of financial sector debt. Um, but most people would agree the banks are in better shape yeah. now than they were in the GFC. The issue on my numbers is if you look at total credit supply in the US, the banks are now less than one third. So to say the banks are in good shape is something, but you've got a whole lot of other credit providers that aren't nearly as well understood or as well regulated, and they are also very important. What if we climb to the 10,000 foot level for a second? Because I think some people think anytime there's weakness, it's going to be like 08 again. And as you point out, it's not going to be where the financial system goes to zero overnight. However, we have some issues that we just became aware of where is in, in England, there's the LDI issue and the whole collateral daisy chain, which is over my pay grade. Maybe you can talk about that. And then we we have the the elephant in the room, which is the Japanese trying to hold the tenure at 25 basis points. Is it possible to get something systemic out of one of those two places or perhaps Europe and have their financial system or, or that be some sort of a system problem this time when it's not liable to be the U.S. banking system? Uh, that's an obvious risk that you can't rule out. Um, but just un- unbundling the areas, I mean, we've now discovered the, the pension problem in the U.K. Um, I mean, it's about my pay grade as well, uh, Bill, but I think like all of us, we we read James Aitken. Um, you know, I think I think the BOE, if they're willing to prevent a disorderly run in the long end, they can keep a lid on that for a period. I think in J- Japan's interesting. Um, I, I still think the BOJ is willing to do whatever it takes, so to speak, to keep this up. Um it's interesting. I mean, if you look at what's happened over the last two or three years, we had this massive inflation impulse that originated in the pandemic and then got exacerbated by um, Putin and Russia and Ukraine. And how much policymakers have to respond to that unavoidable initial inflation wave really was a function of how much that started to become self-sustaining in their domestic inflation pressures. Now, when I look around the developed world, I can put countries on a spectrum. On the one hand, you've got the US, where we clearly now have these self-sustaining endogenous inflation pressures. But at the other extreme, I look at Japan, and, I mean, this inflation wave, it's like neutrinos. It's just passed right through the whole continent of Japan without leaving a trace. Uh, so in a funny way, I mean, the BOJ doesn't need to respond in the same way that the Fed does. The BOJ's problem is it's sitting with a policy tool that's demonstrably ineffectual. I mean, if QE was Japan's cure, it would be in very good shape. Um, so it, it's not, but what can I say? I mean, it's it's partly responsible for where the yen is. I, I don't think it's the only issue for the yen. Um, if I'm trying to make a you know understand a currency in a big picture sense, and this is this is a ten thousand foot comment, 
Um, you know, my starting point is a country's terms of trade. So that's the ratio of export prices to import prices. The yen trade weighted index is at multi-decade lows. Japan's trade weight in terms of trade is at multi-decade lows. I can sort of explain why the yen is as weak as it is without even resorting to QE, but QE obviously exacerbates the problem. But it's truly remarkable. I mean, Japan is a commodity importing country with the yen so weak. Yeah, headline CPI spiked, but wage growth is running at 1%. I mean, there's no sense of it, of it feeding on itself. Um, but in terms of the financial risk, I, I, who knows? Um, who knows is the short answer. But it would need to be a big risk, I think, to dissuade the Fed from cracking down and, and getting inflation down, um, is my view. And, I mean, we've, we've, we've jumped around. I mean, to go back to the, 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 the quitting the secular stagnation point, I'll, I'll rattle these off pretty quick. So there's the fiscal policy. I think central banks have changed their stripes. Um, you know, central bank best practice was this singular focus on inflation without um, uh, worrying about anything else and, and setting policy preemptively. Now most central banks at least nod to labour market concerns. But the third reason is perhaps the most important, if you're looking at this through the prism of fundamentals. You know, in my view, secular stagnation is a problem where planned saving exceeds planned capex. So you've got this idea of excess saving in the private sector. Now, if you look at the data, what really drove that over the last three decades um, was not rising saving, it was declining capex. Now, I can see a number of reasons why capex is heading up structurally uh, in developed economies. First, um, adding more resilience to domestic economies. I mean, we optimised economies over the last three decades to maximise financial returns, but that optimization created very fragile economies. And the GFC showed how fragile the financial sector is. The pandemic has shown how fragile the non-financial sector is. And Putin and Xi are highlighting potential geopolitical stress points. So we're going to see things like onshoring of crucial industries, friendshoring of other stuff, diversification of supply, building up of inventories. I mean, all this requires capex. The second thing is even more obvious, higher defence spending. Defence spending has been falling as a share of GDP throughout the developed world in the last 20 years. The third factor is spending on climate mitigation. And you know, there are estimates out there saying this could be upward of uh, 3 4 5% of global GDP. The fourth is more infrastructure spending, which has been really neglected in developed economies. It's one of the few areas of bipartisanship here in the States. Um, I drove in the other day from JFK and it reminded me why America needs to spend a bit more on infrastructure. Um, and the fifth thing is corporate capex. Now, one of the ironies of the last three decades is that despite lower rates, higher profits, Corporate capex has fallen almost everywhere. And I think there are many reasons for that, but one of the reasons is um, if a business is thinking about undertaking labour-saving capex, the payoff on that is a function of wage growth or expected wage growth. And with wage growth being effectively suppressed, 
um, that blunted the incentive to do that. Now, if we have um, higher through the cycle wage growth, I think we're going to see higher um, capex. So the bottom line is, with higher capex, more aggressive use of fiscal, um, and change central bank behaviour, I, I think the trends are changing. And I say that even though uh, some of the underlying causes of secular stagnation, such as demographics, inequality, are still there. Um, so it's not like all the causes have disappeared, but we're finding new factors that will provide um, a counterweight to them. So not many people believe me. Um, I'm still finding enormous scepticism, but I I think that's the way the world's heading. Yeah, it's so interesting you put it that way, Gerard, because I, I agree that all that makes sense. And I think Russell Napier actually talked about this in an interview you gave recently as well, this, this coming CapEx boom. And everything you lay out there makes perfect sense, both from a reaction perspective to what's happening, but also from a, a perspective of directed policy. But everything you laid out there, it's very difficult to see how inflation comes down on the back of that. You know, everyone's looking at, they're looking at demographics, you're right, absolutely, and they're saying, well, that's still the same, and it, and it is. They're also looking at wage growth and saying, well, it's we're not seeing the spikes that we thought we'd see, so that's a good thing, which for the moment is true. But they're mostly looking at commodity prices coming down and saying, well, because commodity prices are coming down, that means inflation is not baked in the cake. That means it's going to temper and the Fed will be able to pivot. And that seems to be the, the logic for the, the pivot crew. And like you, I just, I just don't buy that. I just don't see how the CapEx boom you've described doesn't at some point turn commodities around uh, and take them higher and doesn't lead to more wage pressure. You know, so it's kind of working out which is the chicken, which is the egg. Do, do you think it's that CapEx boom that's going to naturally follow or we're going to see that as a, the, the CapEx boom is being dragged along by other factors? Uh, no, look, I, th I think the CapEx boom, which, well, CapEx is cyclical, so, um, you know, it may weaken if we have a recession next year, which I think we will. But ultimately, structural drivers mean that you you will need more CapEx and the supply side is quite constrained. And, and what's as important is the CapEx we're talking about is not computer code that's coming up right. next to TikTok. This is stuff. I mean, there might be some IP in a bullet, but there's a lot more lead. Um, so we're going to need this stuff, um, even the green transition. I mean, you know, solar panels and windmills and all this, this is tangible stuff. Um, now, let me go, just unpick a couple of things. Firstly, I'm not telling people to expect dramatically higher inflation. Maybe a little higher. Um, the reality is, if you look at what central banks actually achieved with their inflation outcomes prior to the pandemic, most of them were undershooting. So if they actually hit their targets, that's going to involve a little bit of an increase. They might overshoot a little. But the real story for me is uh, we saw for three decades relatively stable inflation in the States. I mean, 90% of the observations were within a sort of 1% to 3% band. The point was for the Fed to keep inflation in that 1% to 3% band, it had to keep on lowering interest rates successively every cycle. I think we go through a reverse process. To keep inflation in that band, you will need to successively lift interest rates every cycle. So this is more an interest rate story for me than an inflation story. Um, but on, on, on the on the, um, the CapEx, um, 
yeah, I mean, these are all structural drivers. And, and the thing is, there's room for the corporate sector to do it. Almost everywhere you look globally, corporate capex is exceptionally low, even though profits are very high. Yeah, corporates haven't wanted to, but they may not have a choice. Um, if you get told, hey, you can't source certain things from China, or if you get told you need to be uh, carbon neutral by whatever, uh, it, this may not be commercial sense, but it's going to happen. And it's going to be far more palatable for politicians to fund it that way than to fund it through either much larger deficits or higher taxes. Um, <clears throat> One thing that I, I keep uh, puzzling over is the areas where we need CapEx for sure, not even counting the moving of supply chains from China to wherever next they're going to go, whether it's here or other countries. A lot of the places that where, where we need the CapEx are in industries where at least the current administration and the current mood in this country is very anti that. And certainly the same in Europe. I mean, the, the fact that they don't, they haven't woken up to their mistake, uh, no pun intended, uh, woken up to their mistake thus far and are only begrudgingly not turning off nuclear plants is sort of eye opening as to how entrenched this mentality is. But if I was sitting on the board of, of an energy company or I don't know that I could move forward with the decision to, to, to spend the cap X because it's going to, you know, the, the payback's going to be down the road, you know, a few years, even though I can see the need because I have no idea what these policies are going to be. Now, maybe if we get past this midterm election and it goes in a way that makes companies more comfortable spending for CapEx, I, I can see how we can get started, but I just, I keep, I, I don't see how we get the CapEx cycle started, even though we need it, given all the uncertainties that we have. Have you have you wrestled with that piece of the problem? I think we in a period of perennial underinvestment in in carbon-based energy. Yeah, I, I can't see that being reversed. People will do things in the heat of the moment. So in Europe, you can expect them to build some, you know, um, LNG facilities that would allow them to tap into global markets and not become reliant on Russia. And yeah, I mean, that was clearly, particularly by the Germans, a massive strategic faux pas to, to get in bed with the Russians. Um, I think they definitely regret that now. Um, so they'll do that. So they'll do bare minimum and won't go above. Um, the, the other areas, though, where I, I can see a belated response is in some of the other um, resource areas where CapEx now is absolutely rock bottom. According to WorldScope data, uh, net CapEx by the non-energy resource sector at the moment is zero, no CapEx. Um, mm -hmm. Now, that may partly be an ESG thing, but I think the more likely point is that they saw their greatest ever CapEx boom um, peak in 2010-11 on the back of the China story. And all that resultant capacity came on stream just as the arse fell out of the global cycle and they destroyed their returns. Now, every CEO, CFO running one of these big companies still has the scars of that. So this is classic generals fighting last war. So exactly. I think they, they will be dragged. They will ultimately invest. But the good thing from an investment perspective is returns are likely to stay higher for longer, much less likely to, to, to go and do overinvestment. And this is one of the things in an equity sense 
you know, I, I love this stuff. I love this stuff. Right. Because um, the profit margins will be there and you can invest in the companies and make money and not have it, have them, you know, I'll, I'll create a, a mini boom that turns into a bust right away. But, but all those things also argue for sort of the stickiness of prices and the, and the, and the supply and demand imbalances to last a little longer, which feeds back to your interest rates being higher for longer. Yeah. I, you didn't say it that way, but it's that's kind of what you're. No, no, no. I, think. I, I, I wonder on that. You know how much copper adds to CPI? Yeah, you know, three. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. Three, so the only commodity that really moves the dial are your energy commodities. Um, my point is that the reason the US has an entrenched inflation problem now is is wages and services. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know. That means that the Fed would dash its credibility if it said mission accomplished as headline CPI falls, if the reason that headline CPI is falling is a combination of food, energy, and goods prices. If auto prices go back to where they were pre-pandemic and food, when all you need is food and energy to flatline and the contribution to CPI goes to zero, if they said we've done it, oh, man, um, you know, long-end yields are just going to puke because you haven't done it. You won't be able to declare victory until you get your service sector prices under control. And almost, I won't say the only thing, but easily the thing that drives, most important to drive service sector prices, including housing, is is wages. Um, I mean, wages are more influential on rents than house prices are um, because ultimately a landlord will put up um, the rental in line with what the tenant can afford, and that's much more a function of the wage growth than it is the house price. So we simply at the moment in the US have wage growth at a level incompatible with the Fed hitting its inflation target. So if this is a credible Fed, it's going to have to focus on labour market indicators. And my view is there's a dozen different wage measures out there. I like using... Um, the employment cost index. Um, so let's just use that when we're going to quantify this. Uh, now that's, that's running north of 5% and we've got service sector inflation running north of 6 um, Now I think that needs to be pushed back below 4 So the question is, okay, what? how much loosening do we need in the labour market to get wage growth down more than a percent? Well, if you look at the relationship between wages and unemployment, a.k.a. the Phillips curve, um, it's now suggesting that you probably need to lift unemployment by at least a percent, perhaps 2%. The sting in the tail is there has never been an increase in US unemployment of more than half a percent not associated with recession. So if you think that the loosening in the labour market required to get inflation under control is the order of magnitude of one or two percent. You have to make a recession your base case, because if you don't, then you're assuming the Fed can pull off something that no Fed has right. been able to do in the past. So, yeah, I think recession's coming. The only question in my mind is how high rates need to go to achieve that. Now, if you're a short rating rate trader, I've just dodged the big question. Uh, for what it's worth. Yeah, I think they'll probably go to five. But if you're an equity investor, you don't need to know how high rates are going to go. All you need to know is rates are going to go high enough to cause a recession. And in a recession, earnings always get smacked. 
And that's all an equity investor needs to know. Yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's such a great point. But what's been fascinating to watch, and I, I want to come back to the, your thoughts on this mythical pivot or, or potentially mythical pivot, is that we're seeing investment banks calling recession that's baked in the cake, essentially, at the same time as they're predicting EPS earnings growth over the next three years for the S&P, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing to me how, how you can have the same people putting this same research out. You know, I think what you say is absolutely right. But the kind of missing piece that ties that together is this pivot, is the idea that, well, yeah, somehow they're going to pivot at exactly the right time and they're going to find that sweet spot between not crippling earnings. But you know, to me, that seems farcical. But when you think about this pivot, and at some point, as you say, they will, but not until they've created this recession and got rates high enough, what are your thoughts on that? What are they looking for in order to do it? Because I agree with you. I don't think it's a certain amount of pain in asset prices anymore. What are they looking for before they can say mission accomplished and hang the banner? Uh, I think it is labour market indicators. Um, just there, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, you've got to get wages under control. And that means, yeah, <clears throat> I don't think, Paul Volcker has left the thing. So they're not going to deliberately engineer a recession. It's just that if you watch labour market indicators as your guide to tightening, given that labour market indicators are lagging indicators and that monetary policy works with a lag, you're almost guaranteeing a recession. Um, so I think they're looking at things like you know, vacancies or indicators like the NA, NFIB you know, pay expectation series, but ultimately you've got to see it in the wage data. Now, the hourly earnings series from the payroll report isn't as high as it was, but I actually think that's too affected by composition to be your best benchmark of that. And that's why I like the employment cost index, um, which doesn't get affected by compositional shifts. Um, and there's no sign yet of of deceleration. And yeah, one small inflection won't be sufficient. I mean, Powell has made pretty clear that he wants to, you know, avoid a mistake of easing easing off the pressure too soon, and then this thing springing back to life. Um, so, if labour market indicators head and shoulders above everything for me, um, we're not there. Why aren't we there yet? Well, one of the really unusual features of the um, pandemic downturn was this bifurcation in consumer spending um, with services down and goods up. And that was true in a lot of developed economies, including the US. What we're now seeing is, is a normalisation swing back. If you spend a, a dollar less on goods and a dollar more on services, that's GDP neutral, but it's not labour market neutral right? because services are much more labour intensive. So what we've seen this year is rather soggy GDP numbers with employment markets tight as a drum. Um, and, and you know, once again, this is keeping the pressure on the Fed. So even though I'm pretty sure we're going to see the manufacturing ISM below 50 in the next month or two, i.e. in contraction, we're seeing early signs of the inventory cycle turning. We're seeing the housing sector, which is always rate sensitive, starting to wobble. So all your goods sectors are clearly going to be lagging signs of distress in the next quarter or two. But your service sector is going to be a laggard, and that's because consumers are redirecting their spending to services. My pop psychology take on this is that a lot of consumers just want to enjoy this holiday season. It's going to be the first normal Christmas in three years. 
And that means they're going to draw down reserves, which in a lot of places you do have this excess saving because we didn't spend all the checks we got sent. They'll blow it this Christmas um, and then come back in the new year and go, right, okay, uh, real pay is down, uh, house price is down. Uh, if I'm looking for a mortgage, that's up. Manufacturing's weak. And we might see a distinct change in the tone of consumer behaviour uh, early in the new year. And my best guess is we, we're in recession by the middle months of next year. I'd like to um, frame the question about how this plays out slightly differently. And, and I, I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but I'm trying to figure out how to do this. But l- let me try. We have a generation or two of investors who've grown up in the post-Greenspan Fed era. And all they have seen is the outcomes like you described, that the Fed was able to, you know, quote unquote, pivot whenever they wanted to because inflation wasn't too high. As an aside, I think inflation was higher than the official statistics, but nobody really bothered about it because financial markets were working well and everything was kind of okay. And we just, but what accrued to the Fed was a tremendous amount of credibility when if you examine their record, it's been pretty woeful. They get the credit for stopping the financial system from going to zero, that and the the government bailouts. But there's no discussion of how come they let that bubble get created in the wake of the prior real uh, equity bubble, particularly when the Fed was supposed to be regulating the banking system. Then, um, of course, they backed away from QE and the QT wasn't like watching paint dry. It, It was more difficult and they had to back away. They begged for inflation, got way more than they wanted. When it showed up, they claimed it was transitory. They start raising rates. The bond market basically freaks out and goes in the tank. And the Fed is getting credit for cuts that they were slow to start delivering. Admittedly, they got up to speed better than the other central banks. But the people that are objective sort of seem to give the Fed credit for doing the right thing when they've really done none of that. They've been dragged kicking and scheming into the hiking cycle and they've, they've done way bit more than the rest. So it seems to me when you're looking at what they're looking for, I don't think they know what they're looking for. They haven't known what their policies have led to for several decades. So they're tightening and hoping it'll work out and they will keep tightening, in my opinion, until something breaks badly. The younger generation seems to think that uh, they'll find some way through this, as you were talking. But I think those of us that that, that have seen these cycles are are a little more skeptical. So I know I've made this a complicated setup. But what I keep trying to figure out is how do things look if my viewpoint of the Fed and their lack of understanding, and they're going to go till something breaks, as opposed to the viewpoint, well, well, they'll go to things weak enough or the genie gets back in the bottle enough. I think see, there's two camps before they can they can change their mind. One is something really bad happens and they have to, as opposed to they get things where they want them and they want to. So I'm in the camp that they're going to have to because something's going to go wrong because they don't know what they're doing. And I, I don't know if that's fair, but how do you kind of Respond to that. Sorry, I did a bad job no, of setting this up. No, no, but. no, 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 that's that's all fine. I mean, look, I've got to say, Bill, just as a preamble, um, and Grant's heard this from me before. 
I'm on a, a hugely unsuccessful one-man campaign to tell people that central banks aren't responsible for everything that's happened in the last four decades. Um, and what you've just said demonstrates how unsuccessful I've been. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I'm the guy that wrote the book about the Fed, so I'm a I'm a guy with the hammer and the the Fed's the nail. Yeah, no, I know. So I, mean, I, I think there are a few. We're in a we're in a jam. We're absolutely in a jam. I think there are quite a few contributing factors. Central banks are one of them, but I just don't think they are the only one. Okay, uh, but anyway, look, we can, let's let's not dive into that can of can of worms. To get to the pointy end of your question, um, I it, it depends on the nature of the pain that we're seeing. If okay. all we're seeing, and uh, Jay says this is. Welcome to the world of price discovery. We haven't had this for a while. Then right. suck it up. Um, sorry, this is no yeah. longer a BTFD market. Um, and you're just going to have to live with that. If it smells of something more systemic that can become disorderly and massive, lead to massive macro overshoot, yeah, then the Fed will blink, pivot, or whatever, how are we going to dress it up? They will have to address that. Now, do they know the risks um, around that sort of um, option? No, I don't think anybody does. I mean, the GFC demonstrated that CEOs didn't know the risks in their own organisations. <laughs> you know, this, this whole thing is this massive black box. Um, but, I, I mean, the key point I would say to people is don't expect the Fed to respond to your pain if, the pain is simply a byproduct of them addressing the inflation problem. Got if it. your pain becomes something of a symptom of something much bigger and deeper, yep, then you can look for relief. But hey, that probably means you're looking for relief when equities are down another 50%. I mean, you don't want to hold on to equities because that's your backstop. I mean, to use the old cliche that we always used to talk about, there may be a Fed put still, but boy, the strike price is a lot lower than it was right. historically. Um and I mean, we've all agreed. I mean, I don't think markets quite believe it yet. And I know from talking to clients, I mean, they've been holding on to this hope of a pivot. Um, they can't really be serious, can they? I mean, surely they'll turn and run at the first whiff of smoke. Well, they've kept on marching full with the bayonets yeah. out and they jabbing. Um, now, it's they probably will make a mistake and it probably will lead to recession. Um, I, I think that will cause some, I mean, I, you know, we're a mile away from that being priced um, in equities. And I mean, Grant, as you said, you've got this amazing disconnect between top down people saying recession and the bottom up. I, I guess there must be a Chinese wall there, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I think earnings forecasts are a mile too high. If you look at SP earnings, X energy, and the only reason X energy is they've been so volatile the last two or yeah. three years, adds a lot of noise. Now, they're going for still double-digit gains next year. If you actually look at what's happened over the last two or three decades, S&P earnings have become a lot more sensitive to macro drawdowns. Um, if you just compare, for example, the size of the drawdown in non-farm payrolls to the size of the drawdown in EPS, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, the ratio used to be five to one. So a 1% drop in employment was a 5% drop in EPS. In, in the last 30 years, um, the sensitivity has doubled or tripled. 
So corporates have increased their operational and financial leverage. And so any given macro bump on the road leads to a bigger jolt in earnings. So I, I can't see how, even if you think this may be a relatively vanilla recession, that we don't get at least a, a 20 to 30% EPS drawdown. That compares to a 10% up. So there, there's your 30, 40% gap between reality and expectation. Um, and there is no way this market has priced this in. And it's also worth noting that you know, equity markets can be a little forward-looking, but let's not exaggerate this. In, in the GFC, for example, equities troughed only two months before the downgrades troughed. Um, you know, equities don't price in an entire downgrade cycle before it's even started, which is what some people almost seem to believe. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, th- and this may be confirmation bias on my part, but when 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 you say that, I'm nodding furiously here. I'm going to crick my neck in a minute. But this idea that the Fed will break something, to me, it's the equity market simply because at some point people will have that, oh, my God, they're serious moment, right? And that's the moment when you'll get, until we get that capitulation, you're not going to get a vent that's going to drag the Fed kicking and screaming back to the table, you know, which which means everybody's right. Bill, you're right. They are going to break it. But Gerald, you're right. They're going to break it by not doing anything. And it's just going to happen because people suddenly go, oh, shit, you, you weren't kidding. And yeah. that seems to be all it's going to take at this point is the equity market to suddenly go. That's the headline for your next letter, mate. Oh, shit, they weren't kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But, but you know, Gerald, when you, when you talk to people and you're on the road talking to clients now, are they actively resistant to this idea that they're serious or they're still just trying to get their heads around the data coming in and figuring out what it might be that leads to them blinking? It's a bit like going through the, what is it, the seven stages of grief? Uh, you know, starting with denial um, you know, through resentment and, you know. Yeah. And, and this goes back to, you know, the, the arguments I had over really the last 12 months um, about, you know, how high rates would go. And you know, as I've already mentioned, I'm, it, there were two areas of debate. The, the first was you know, how resilient is the U.S. economy going to be in the face of rate increases? And many people thought, hey, you know, a 2% fund rate, this will roll over. Well, they underestimated that resilience. Um, and then the second thing was the, pain, the Fed's pain threshold. They thought, okay, you know, the Fed, you know, down, down 10% on the S&P, they'll pivot. Well, no, they've got that wrong as well. Yeah. So it's slowly dawning on them. But what one of the things that's that's stopped the that slow, oh, oh, I see what's going on now, reflected in bigger down moves, is that I mean, almost uniquely, bonds haven't offered you a safe haven in this episode. I mean, if you had a jumped out of equities and got into bonds, let alone a credit side, you've been smacked just as hard. Yeah. So in a funny way, there was no alternative. Well, yeah, it was cash or commodities, and that was it. What will be interesting is I think we're starting to get to the level where even if you're not going to get the exact yield top on the treasuries, you go, you know what? They're now offering me a sanctuary. And if you don't want the duration risk, just go to a two year note. Yeah. Um, and that may start to get the movement because. My sense is, look, really big moves tend to happen, particularly in the equity space, not when funds change dramatically the positioning. 
I'm not waiting for Cathy Wood um, to start buying bombed-out European banks. Just like, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I would never wait for Jeremy Grantham to buy some loss-making tech companies. The, the, the big shifts happen when the asset owners go, Cathy, I want my money back. Jeremy, you're getting it. Now, that process has not started at all. Not started at all. In fact, yeah. we can see that. I mean, yeah, she's still getting inflows. She's still getting inflows, correct. So that's how last cycle the mindset still is. Um, and, you know, that's when we when you start to see this thing go on for longer. But even, I mean, it, the idea that the first half equity sell-off was the market pricing in a downturn is crazy in my view. Yeah. The, the, if you look at the relative sector performance up until you know the middle of June when the 10-year Treasury first got to 3.5%, the worst performing sectors were your most expensive sectors and your bond proxies. The best four performing sectors globally in that period were energy, materials, financials, industrials, the four sectors most sensitive to the macro cycle. So to try and tell me that what the market was doing was factoring in a macro downturn when the four sectors that would be most adversely affected by that macro downturn were the four best performing sectors makes no sense to me. So, you know, we've had a derating cycle reflecting a rise in real rates and a rise in inflation. What we haven't started yet to any serious extent is the cycle that comes when we factor in earnings risk. And, I mean, just to underscore how much risk there may be in the US, and this is specific to the US, I've just got a very simple chart that looks at inflation-adjusted EPS uh, in the US. And if you use the, the Schiller series, you can take it back to the, the late 19th century. Just do an exponential trend through it. And then look how far above or below that long-run trend um, current earnings are. But where we got to at the end of last year was EPS was about 95% above that long-run trend. We haven't seen EPS that far above trend since 1920. So this is a one-century EPS bubble. So what you effectively had in US equities last year year was a very large valuation bubble that was sitting on a very large earnings bubble. The valuation bubble has partly corrected, but I don't think on any measure you can say equities are cheap, but they're not as egregiously overpriced as they were. But we've hardly started to address the issue and risks around that earnings bubble. And if you look at, I mean, this is a bubble that's built up over a few years, but if you just look at the last decade or two, and here I'm going to use reference non-financial sector. Um, the EBITDA margin for the non-financials in the US in last year were, were roughly in line with the 2000 peak. So no difference. The EBIT margin was roughly the same. The post-tax margin was much higher. In other words, the delta was all due to two things, the decline in the effective tax rate on profits and the decline in net interest expense. Now, which way do you think both of those are going to go in the next few years? I yeah. can tell you what, they're not going down. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, well, um, Gerard, we, we've literally only got a few minutes left. You very kindly squeezed 
Bill and I in between some appointments. And I just want to quickly give you a chance to address, and I'll, have, I'll make the question very broad, but the leverage issue was, was your third component of what was worrying you. So we've got a few minutes left. Just just try and flesh that out a little bit for me because, again, it's a, it's a popular topic in this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, a couple of things. As far as non the corporate sector can go, goes, I don't think it's going to be a disaster in a fundamental sense. The problems I can see are market-related. Now, let me give you the two things that worry me. If you look at the stock of investment-grade debt at the moment, half of all that investment-grade debt is rated the lowest investment-grade rating, i.e. half the investment-grade universe is one notch away from becoming jack junk. We all know there's a whole lot of funds out there that their mandates say, hey, you're an IG manager. If they get downgraded, you've got to go. So you can see big dislocations in a market pricing sense coming from that. The other thing is the easily the largest flows that we saw in the post-GFC cycle were not flows into treasuries, were not flows into money market mutual funds, were not flows into equities, it was flows into credit funds. And pretty obviously we know why. Um, you know, mum and pup investor were getting three-eighths of bugger all on their money market mutual fund. Their safe treasury fund was not much better. So you can see all these advisors saying, I've got a bond fund that will get you five, six, seven, eight percent. And if you then had said to them, I just want to let you know though that the option adjusted spread on high yield securities relative to treasury is kind of tight. Yeah, might as well been talking Urdu to them. <laughs> so they went, oh, right, great. And a lot of that money went in via ETFs, uh, which give you the illusion of daily liquidity. liquidity. Yeah. Well, we all know it's liquid if you want to get in, yeah. but it's a bit of a lobster pot, hard to get out. So I'm not saying it's going to be, in a fundamental sense, a disastrous credit cycle. But in a market sense, there could be a lot of fat asses heading for a very thin exit, um, and that could lead to some substantial price overshoots. In terms of the leverage in the financial sector, that is still, well, it's a black box. But all I'd say is it's an enormous pile of debt and leverage and structured products that is now being tested with the highest interest rates that we've seen uh, in two cycles. Um, nothing obvious in the US has cracked yet, but we're not in a recession yet. Um, recessions bring losses, forced sellers, defaults. Um, I'd be surprised if there was no accidents there. I mean, I'd be really surprised. So accidents as opposed to just, you know, a fund underperforming is different to blow-ups. Right. Um, just there's so much there. But unlike the GFC, the sequencing is likely to be different. I mean, in the GFC, it was the credit market exploding that led to the recession. Let's not forget, normally it's recessions that lead to credit markets exploding. Uh, I think that's likely to, the way it's likely to be this thing. You, you get the hard landing first and you see the credit and financial consequences of it second rather than the other way around. Um, ultimately, as I said before, the attraction of being levered is going to shrink if we're in a new world for rates. 
Um, there's always a cycle in rates. I mean, I need to emphasize to everybody that I talk to that, you know, if you want to know my 12-month view on rates or equities, 90% of that's going to be informed by where I think we are in the cycle. But the secular trends are the, the envelopes around which the cycles drift. And so we spent our entire careers trying to call 12-month bond market moves, but it was four decades of lower lows, lower highs. We can still make money that way, but you just got to realise now that the ceiling is going up, as we've already seen, and the floor will go up. I mean, this next recession, I don't think we're going to get Treasury yields back at 50 basis points. So having seen a higher high, I think we're going to see a higher low, and then the next cycle we'll see a new higher high, and, and, and off we go. Um, and that's the change that is the secular story. There's always a cycle, though, within that. Mate, that's, that's perfect. And I'm, I'm looking at the time very carefully. I'm very conscious of your time. I, I know you have to go. Thank you so much for, for finding the time to do this yeah, uh, with us. We really appreciate pleasure. it. Um, and, uh, yeah, time zones, it's a lot easier when I'm in the US. I, I yeah. know one of us is going to have a late night. But, uh, great stuff. Um, I look forward to catching up again and uh, I'll continue to fight the fight that not everything is <laughs> Listen, the next time we'll do the podcast live and you and Bill can strip to the waist and just wrestle. We're going to have a drinking contest. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Not with an Aussie, Bill. No, I'd lose that, but I'd have more fun. <laughs> All right, Jared. Safe travels, mate. Good luck with the trip. Okay. See you, mate. Bye-bye. Yeah, well, Bill, there we go. I mean, that's... Uh, I love listening to Gerald, I have to say. I love the way he writes, the way he thinks. Uh, he's the happiest person I know to be a contrarian. You know what I mean? He embraces in it. He, he really does. And he's always got some phenomenal data points to back up his to back up his site. Well, it's an interesting moment in time to get a chance to talk to um, a litany of smart people we've been lucky enough to talk to and, and others because, you know, now there's a lot of things in motion and there's a lot of questions we don't know the answer to and there's, as we've seen with the LDI, there are things lurking that even people like James Aitken didn't really see coming. Of course, we're going to talk to him soon and we'll get to hear all about why his hair is on fire. But um, I mean, the secular bond bull market, which, as he just said, but without saying it this way, you know, as appears to have flipped. And now we're finally in the, the secular bear market, which will probably last for another couple of generations, given us that's how they go. But it means life's going to be very different from what people have learned in the last 25, 30 years or so. And it's going to present a whole host of surprises. So it's going to be yeah. tough to sit back and be relaxed about financial markets for any length of time going forward for the next couple of years, I would think. No, I, I agree. But, but the, you know, the, the flip side of that is obviously people made a lot of money trading through a similar cycle to this through the 70s. It's a question of understanding that things have changed you know, stopping yourself invest the way you have been investing and finding right. as quick as you can, learn the new way to invest in an inflationary cycle. But it's let's not- remember that the ones that wound up being the most successful investors in the 70s had a little indigestive period of 73, 74. Yes. Of yeah. course, I don't think we can possibly go through that again on that order simply because I don't think the government finances, I mean, I don't know what you know, what interest rate level would spark the kind of equity yeah, drawdown that, that went on for that long. But I, I don't think we can go through a period like that. And even that didn't break inflation. But I don't think we can handle it. I mean, that's the, the difference is if you look back in history for references and you don't adjust for the debt levels of GDP and all those sorts of variables, 
But if you do adjust, you kind of look back at that period and say, yeah, but we couldn't really do that this time. And so, you know, we're going to have to see how it plays out. But one thing's for sure is there's going to be a lot of curveballs relative to what we've seen in the last two, three decades. Yeah, I, I for, think that's for sure. a fair statement you can make. For sure. Well, listen, mate, we, uh, we've got a busy week this week, you and I, after, after a couple of months of, uh, of, of, of silence, uh, largely due to me and weddings and stuff like that. We have a lot on this week. As you said, we're going to talk to James Aitken uh, this is the next couple of days, and then uh, we've got David Einhorn joining us. Um, yeah, no, it's it's going to be a great week, and then we got a couple more for down that. So it's it, it'll be an interesting period, at least for us. Hopefully, hopefully the folks listening uh, get as much out of it as we do. Exactly right. Well, listen, thanks to uh, thanks to our guest Gerard Minak. Minakadvisors.com is Gerard's website. Um, he is phenomenal. His work is fantastic. So I would definitely suggest you check that out. Uh, my thanks to you, Bill, as always. Uh, and if you don't follow us on Twitter already, you can remedy that quite simply. You can follow me at TTMYGH. And I'm at Flatcap. Still there. Still there. Hanging on. All right, mate. We'll talk to you again in a couple of days. Soon. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.